Um, 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 Stop. I'm getting all the ums out now. Seriously, mine are so bad. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I am Coel. And I'm Kenna. I am super excited. finished this last little bit of of typing before we came in here oh yeah i'm so excited i was just like on tiktok just waiting for you to come be like hey are you ready to record i'm like yes let's go (laughs) your feet fall asleep (laughs) yeah so before we do get started i just wanted to do something a little bit different today Uh, we really appreciate all of you guys you know, of course, keeping up with our, our content and listening to us. Um, but we definitely want to hear from you guys more. So I'm going to go ahead and plug our social media now. But rather than doing it at the end of the episode, just something a little crazy, a little different. Just a little different. Um, <laughs> but you can follow us on Instagram at Diagnosing a Killer. We also have Twitter at Killer Diagnosis. We do have a TikTok. It's TikTok.com slash Diagnosing a Killer. And then we also have a Patreon set up. If you'd like to donate to the Patreon, you can donate as little as a, like a dollar a month um, and it goes up as much as you like. So please, if you like our content and you want us to keep having the time to put out content, then that will definitely help us as well. Um, and then our Patreons or our patrons do get um, stickers and then we are working on getting maybe pins or patches as well in the works. So super yes, excited through- about that. Through Rummage Raiders. They yes. are awesome. Saxon and Jordan are some of my new favorite people now, and they are huge fans of ours now. And um, yeah, they're they're going to try to work on getting some pins or some patches potentially, um, maybe with a QR code so that you guys can also spread the word as well. Yeah. But we'll definitely keep you updated on that. And lastly, um, of course, we do have um, a Gmail. So if you want to reach out to us via email, it's diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. We're also looking for sponsors if anyone is interested and in sharing um, if you are not eligible to sponsor, that's where the Patreon comes in. So just wanted to give everyone that info again before we get started, but we're going to go ahead and jump into it. Richard David Falco was born June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His mother was Betty Broder. Richard was the product of an affair. His father was actually a married man named Joseph Kleinman. Mm. Betty herself was also married with one daughter at the time of Richard's birth, However, she was separated from her estranged husband, Tony Falgo. Betty and Tony were happily married at one point and even owned a small business together, Hmm. but finances had become tight and Tony left the family, like in the area entirely. Okay. He was like, hey, take care of this baby and... Goodbye. Like the daughter, right? Bye. So when Betty found out that she was pregnant, she knew it was Kleinman's, not Tony's. Because Tony had already left, but she was still legally married. Okay. When Betty suggested that they can finally be together now and that she wished for Richard to have Joseph Kleinman's last name, he threatened to never speak to her again, nor help her and her daughter out financially if she kept the baby. Well, she just knows how to pick him. Right? Yeah. (laughs) It's off to a great start for Richard here. Two amazing (laughs) guys. Betty then decided to name the baby after her then still husband, Tony Falco. Furthermore, Betty decided to give up the baby for adoption when Richard was just a week old. Oh, no. A baby baby. Richard's adoptive parents were a couple by the name of Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz. Oh, sorry. Did we just shriek <laughs> into the microphone? Are okay. you sure? It's not who I thought you were doing. Okay, good. But I do not know as much about this case as you probably think I do. Okay, good. So I'm okay. really excited. 
I'm excited too. Ooh, I've been really wanting to do this one. I think he's on my list and I really? need to delete him now. Can you doing delete it? him? So the baby's name was David Richard Berkowitz. So they kind of just made it their own by switching David and Richard, gotcha. which mm-hmm. was his middle name. And yeah. So Richard David Berkowitz. The couple lived in the Southview section of the Bronx and were local hardware shop owners. Pearl and Nathan were unable to have children of their own, and for them, having children was kind of now or never just due to their age. They were getting much older. God, I bet they felt so fucking bad later in life. I mean, maybe. I always wonder about that, you know? Like, who's Manson's parents? You well, know? his mom sold him for a loaf of bread. That's true. Yes, yeah. she was a she was a, a sex worker. Or not a loaf of bread. I think she sold him for a case of beer. Something. Yeah, that's so really sad. It's yeast. Never mind. Fuck her. <laughs> so David would grow up as an only child, and the Berkowitz didn't acquire any more children after David. David was their only one. David's at home life was pretty normal. However, apparently there was an instance or two that Nathan, his adoptive father, no, actually showered with David when he was younger. Ah. And I don't, I didn't specify what age. I I think it was maybe on David's account that he had said that or something. But, but other than that. The age is, like, it kind of matters. I think, I, I think so. Because it's I a little sketch. I don't think there's reason why you should shower with your, I mean, unless it's like a baby baby. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, like, the skin to skin contact can be very beneficial for, like, a newborn, like yeah. a little baby. That's weird. I think it's weird. But, you know, everyone's family is different. Everybody's family is different. There's, like, some people that, you know, talk about, like, their mom walking around naked until they were, like, eight yeah. or something. That's weird. But I think that's weird. No one needs to see your bush, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara Bush. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even make that connection. <laughs> Nobody needs to see that bush, Barbara. Barbara Bush. <laughs> Say it before you said it, because you were thinking the same thing. It's true. You gave me this look like, <laughs> why does that sound so familiar? I'm going to make a joke. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, David was pretty bright, as you see, right? He did well enough in school and would oftentimes get bored of school because he was pretty intelligent. Yeah. David also seemed to be unusually hyperactive around this time, and he was also made fun of for being kind of like a bigger kid. Like, he just, like, his stature was just all around, like... Because that's his fault. He was, like, a shit brick house. Like, he was, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was thick. He had broad shoulders and stuff. Oh, he's on brick. He probably looked like he could play football at age, like, six. You know? Ooh. Jesus. Pearl, his mother, would often take him to the local YMCA, where they would play and, like, have fun, just swimming and playground stuff or whatever. She probably thought nothing of it at the time because David was so young, but she would actually take David into the women's locker rooms to shower. And a lot of the time, the women in there would be nude. I'm sorry. How, and how old is he at this point? I mean, he's elementary school age, probably like five, six, seven. Okay. Yeah. Five, six, seven. That is a way old, too old for that. That's way too old. That is. See, I don't know if it was like, I mean, some of the women would probably be walking around like nude or like with a towel on but i think it was just like maybe the overall theme of sexuality yeah you know what no, i mean that's inappropriate yeah there's like adult women sure in front of you that are naked that's not appropriate. well i mean is he gonna shower with the naked women or is he gonna shower with his dad i mean come on. i mean yeah <laughs> much later in life david would recall this so clearly it had some type of an effect yeah like he remembered that David would later recall when he was about five or six that when he was at the local YMCA, he actually witnessed a man walk into the women's locker room 
And David said that he kind of reveled in the noises of disgust that the women made at, like, this man walking into the locker room. Ew. Yeah. Like a noise like that. Ew. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> Around the same age, David also recalls an instance where his mother slapped him for allowing a young schoolgirl to dump sand over his head, saying that he shouldn't allow girls to treat him that way. Okay. You gotta stand up to women and fucking make yourself known. <laughs> it's dying as this killer's moment of irony. Oh my god. <laughs> the mom telling him that too. And slapping him and saying, like, don't allow women to treat you that way. As what? she's treating him that way. What the fuck? As a woman is actively treating okay, him. Pearl. I see you, Pearl. Also, when David was about five, he um it was revealed to him that he was adopted, but that his mother had actually died during childbirth, which was untrue. Clearly false. You know, like a lie. Yeah. It's a liar. Like a liar. liar. (laughs) So essentially Pearl and Nathan, I guess like to say that as essentially they kind of ensured that he wouldn't go looking for his biological mom, which I've heard of adoptive parents doing that, which is horrific. It's like Dexter. So of course, you know, that was Betty Falco. When David was six, he was actually hit by a car and received a pretty severe concussion from the incident. How? He's six. Like, who the fuck isn't watching him? Like, he just fell off a roof. Yeah, like, it's, it's like, like <laughs> it's like Angel Rosendez. Like, you just fall off a roof. Just fall off a roof. Born. <laughs> like, as soon as you're born. <laughs> just a few months after this, he actually slammed into a brick wall, like, ran into a brick wall, causing another concussion. And uh, when he was eight, he was actually hit over the head with a pipe, receiving a four inch gash to his head. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, first of all, this is really sad. Like, I'm not trying to make a funny out of this, but it reminds me, have you ever seen Not Another Teen Movie? Yeah. When the football player, like, it's like number of concussions he has left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how many times can you get hit over the head and, like, I mean, clearly the it has span some of sort like of four effect. Years. Yeah. Like, clearly. That's fucking terrible. And over the span of four years. Like, god. You, your head never gets a chance to recover. Yeah. It is like Angel Rosendez. It is. Or we saw that, too, in um, Raymond Fernandez. Yeah, when it happened to Raymond Fernandez, too, on the ship. Where it, oh, yeah. yeah. We see that a lot in these. Well, he- severe head trauma damages the, you know, the frontal lobe, and that's, like, exactly where all of that shit happens like, and comes from. So, eventually, David would turn to more rebellious behavior. Who could have seen it? To cure his boredom, right? Because mm. he's also very bored in school as well. By the time he was in middle school, David began to commit small robberies and set small fires. Oh. <laughs> did he went to bed? It didn't specify. He probably did. I'm sure he did. Probably did. He probably got slapped for it, too. True. David would often play neighborhood baseball with the other local kids, but many people in the neighborhood considered David to be spoiled and at times bully younger, smaller kids. Because <sighs> of his stature. Yeah. Right? And it's like that whole thing is like you get made fun of for being big. Well, then you use your size to like intimidate people. Yeah. His parents, concerned about his behavior, contacted a psychotherapist. Okay, good for them. David was to go once a week for two years, but it didn't yield any long term results. Interesting. Which is interesting, right? Either way, David's parents reasoned with themselves that David had yet to be arrested for any crimes. Oh, so he must be fine. Right? Nor had any sort of concerning behavior documented in school, and they thought that maybe he would just grow out of it. It's a phase. It's a phase. David said about this time that he started isolating himself, enjoying hiding under his bed for hours during these long depressive times, and recollecting that he realized he didn't want to be around people. Okay. So he's just, like, becoming a recluse. He's just, like, hermit. 
Yeah. And this is like middle school. Middle school, That's early really high sad. school. It is sad. He would actually sneak out at night because he said that he would rather be surrounded by darkness instead of like being out during the day. And he didn't like being around people. So he thought that like being in the, you know, being out at night when there's not so many people, it appealed to him. He said he would often scale buildings or bridges and then imagine that he would jump off of them. Oh, that's sad. And he was so young. He's like 12 or 13 at this point. Jeez. David actually began to abuse animals at this point as well. Mm. It first started by stomping on like bugs or burning them with magnifying glasses, um, which seem can seem pretty normal for a kid, a young boy at that age when they're learning about, you know, mm-hmm. death and, and whatever. However, David would actually collect dead bugs, worms, beetles, and so on and so forth, take them home, and then dip them in glue to encase them, and essentially preserving them in that, like, moment of death. Which is, like, not normal. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Which is, like, not normal. Oh, my God. Oof. Oof. I just never heard of that. Like, I had heard, like, some people that, like, take pictures of, like, stuff. To preserve, like, the moment of death, but to, like, dip it in, like... Yeah, that's interesting. By the time that David turned 14, Pearl, his adoptive mother, would break some very alarming news to David. Pearl had been suffering from breast cancer since before his adoption, and now the prognosis was not good. Pearl ended up passing away late in the year of 1967. Oh, my gosh. David felt very cheated by this because he never knew. Like, if he had known... For 14 years. He might have had more time to, like, come to terms with it. David credited his mother for his ability to be compassionate towards people, and now after her passing, it was like, nope. Fuck you, bitch. <laughs> well, now he feels like, okay, my my biological mother is dead. Now my adoptive mother is dead. His father worked long hours and was rarely home, so David didn't really have a connection to Nathan at that time. And at this point, he felt like the world had just kind of collapsed around him, and especially since he didn't get the opportunity to spend the time that he wanted to with his mother, not knowing that she was sick. After his mother's passing, David's father began to date another woman within a year of her passing. Oh, no. So David was not happy about that Mm -hmm. at all. This began to create a big rift between David and Nathan's new girlfriend and further harming the relationship between David and his father, which was already strained at this point. Nathan would remarry in 1971, and David, again, not happy, as soon as he graduated high school with a 3.3 GPA, he enlisted into the army. David underwent competency tests to determine where he would best be suited and passed both of his psychological and physical assessments. Hmm. David did do well um, in a routine in the army that the army provided, and he was described as an excellent marksman. Okay. Later in the year 1971, David would be stationed in South Korea. David found this as an opportunity to experiment with drugs while he walked the streets of South Korea. Oh. Cute, right? Cute. He would actually lose his virginity to a Korean sex worker and would contract an unspecified venereal disease. Unspecified? It was probably chlamydia. Yeah, probably. David would say during this time in the military that he began to question his Jewish faith, and he began to attend Baptist church and even get baptized. Hmm. So again, yeah, I think it's really interesting. So dead bio mom, dead adoptive mom, first experience with a woman disease you know what i mean he's definitely hates women (laughs) yeah it's getting there (laughs) um we can see where this is going yes he also around this time uh began to escalate his fire starting 
he kept a diary of every fire he had ever set up until this point as well. So, like, even from when he did it when he was younger. That seems tedious. (laughs) That does seem like a lot of work, right? (laughs) So he's he's now showing two of the three McDonald triad mm -hmm. things that say that he's going to be a serial offender later in life. With the exception of bedwetting, but we don't know that he didn't do that. We just don't know if he did. It's true. Interesting. Yeah, I did find that really interesting that he preserved the bugs, and then now he's preserving the fires by writing about them. He wants to keep those memories. David began to be tardy and defiant towards his superiors in the army, and he was even declared AWOL once when he was late to catch a bus back to base one evening. But I feel like you have to be gone for quite a while to be declared AWOL. <laughs> it's not like, was okay, you're five minutes late. AWOL! <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it's five minutes late. I think it might have been like, well, didn't catch the bus and made no effort to try to get back onto base. Yeah. That's probably what it was. Plus, at this point, clearly he's known to be doing drugs and sleeping with sex workers and being late and yeah. being insubordinate or whatever. True. Even with all of these infractions, David was honorably discharged in 1974. Now back home, David enrolled in Bronx Community College and began working as a security guard. David continued to set fires at this time, again and again, keeping note of every single one. It was revealed to David at some point in this year, 1974, by his father Nathan that his biological mother was in fact not dead and that her name was Betty Falco and that his original birth name was Richard Falco. Oh my god, imagine finding that. How old is he, like what, 20? He would have been about 20 or 21. Yeah. That's, imagine that. That's, like, when you can really, like, understand those feelings and yeah. emotions and stuff. Like, that's wild. Okay, not only did you rob me of, like, getting to spend more time with my adoptive mother before yeah. she died, you robbed me of my entire life not knowing who my biological mother was. Yeah, that she was alive this whole time. Like, how do you not feel pissed off? I would be so fucking livid. I would be, too. Almost as soon as David heard this, he began to try to find his biological mother, right? Next logical step. Mm -hmm. He was successful in 1975 when he found Betty's address, first reaching out with a Mother's Day card, which I thought was really nice. Oh, that's sweet. Betty invited David to come out and visit and even stay with her and David's half-sister, Rosalyn. While staying with Betty, David did pretty well. He was working as a taxi driver and he was pretty happy, finally feeling like a part of a a really core group of, like, family members. Yeah. While staying with Betty, however, David would find out the true nature of his conception, and furthermore to come to find out that Joseph Kleinman, his biological father, had already died as well. Oh my god, he's just being let down, like, after letdown. Right? This threw David into a tailspin, of course. This would actually become the height of his fire-setting career. So with David's newfound knowledge and his spiraling... David began to slowly drift away from Betty and Rosalind, and eventually they would lose all contact with each other. Oh, no. David moved back into the New Rochelle area, which is kind of north from where he grew up in the Bronx. David started writing to his father, who is now living in Florida, and he had begun to become very depressed, and he had said that to his father, that he had become increasingly depressed um, after the fallout with Betty. Yeah. And that he started to hear voices and become increasingly paranoid. And guess what? He's at the exact age where schizophrenia presents itself. Age 20. Age 22. This is a quote from a letter that he wrote to Nathan. It's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood. Gloomy. Dad, the world is getting so dark now. I can feel it more and more. The people, they are developing hatred for me. You wouldn't believe how much some people hate me. Many of them want to kill me. I don't even know these people, but they still hate me. 
Most of them are young. I can walk down the street and they spit and kick at me. The girls call me ugly and they bother me the most. The guys just laugh. Anyhow, things will soon change for the better. End quote. Eerie as fuck. Honestly, like, a huge cry for help. Yeah. Do you think that, like, the girls spitting and kicking at him and the guys laughing, do you think that was really happening or do you think that was a hallucination that he just thought was happening? I don't know if he thought it was a hallucination, but I think it's more, like, metaphorical. Yeah, I think that the everyone hates me and they want to kill me, I think that was a hallucination or yeah. that was, like, a false, you know, narrative in his mind. Yeah, and it clearly, like, he isolates enough that I know the way that my mind is when I'm by myself for a long time, yeah. you know? So I'm wondering if it's not like he's gone to a bar or a restaurant or, like, tried to strike up a conversation with a woman or something and then her just being like, ugh, you know? And like that's one like, person rejects him and he just, just this whole yeah, cloud of Yeah, maybe, side. yeah. After living in New Rochelle for just a few months, David moved back to the Bronx area, determined to leave the voices that he accused of haunting him behind. <sighs> this move, however, did not relieve David of any paranoia or voices. Because it wasn't the place he was in. Right. It was... His brain. It's his brain. He wrote on his walls during a manic episode once, quote, In this hole lives the wicked king, end quote. Quote, kill for my master, end quote. And, quote, I turn children into killers, end quote. Oh my god, that's so scary. It's really, really creepy. (laughs) Oh, I just got like the heaves and the jeeves. You're not getting your deposit back, David. David would set his last fire around this time, ending his arsonist career. He had set close to 1,400 fires. 1,400? 1,400 fires. 1,400. He never got, like, 1,488 fires, to be exact. No, he was never caught. Jesus Christ! But according to his parents, that's all you need, right? Yeah. And he, <laughs> Just, I mean, he's not been arrested. So. Yeah, but he's not been arrested and he's never been written so up. He's fine. He's good. He's a good boy. This was not enough to keep David's voices and demons at bay, however. Uh David then stayed confined inside of his apartment after this last fire for nearly a month, only leaving to get food from down the street and then come back. That's got to be bad for, like, anybody's mental health, especially someone that's clearly struggling with undiagnosed schizophrenia. Eventually, the noise in his head became too much for him to bear. And on Christmas Eve, 1975... David got into his car with a large hunting knife and began to patrol the streets of the Bronx in his car. Mm-mm. David had allowed the demons to take control of his body and mind and said that the demon would tell him when his first victim, when he'd happen upon his first victim. An unknown and still to this day unidentified Hispanic woman was to be David's first attack. Oh, no. Jumping out of his car, he tried to stab the woman However, the woman immediately screamed and began to fight, breaking free almost instantly. Good for her. She was not seriously hurt, and she never filed a complaint about it. Why not? I don't know. She just never did. Oh, my gosh. David hopped back into his car after being shooken because he was like, oh, shit. (laughs) But, again, the demons did not stop. He was driving around the co-op area, which is northeast of the Bronx, there he saw 15-year-old Michelle Foreman walking down Dreiser Loop. It's like this, it's just a little, it's almost like a half cul-de-sac. Wait, this is the same night? Same night. This is like right after the first attack. Jeez. David pulled over his car and attacked the young girl, first stabbing her in the head, and then five more times about her body. 
only stopping after Michelle pushed away from him and began to run and scream to the nearest apartment complex. Oh my god, that's so scary. She did survive the attack, but after being in the hospital for a week. 15. 15 years old. And she just, like, walking, like, just trying to get home or something. Yeah. Michelle was unable to provide police with any real description of her attacker. After the attack, David decided that if he were to ever want to attack or kill someone, he would actually need a different kind of a weapon because stabbing clearly didn't work. Just, like, not my thing. It's just not my thing. Like, I tried it, and I just kind of wasn't into it. I don't know if it's for me. I don't know. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. It's terrible. It was around this time that he purchased a forty-four caliber bulldog handgun. Oh, no. David almost immediately moved away from where he was living at at the time, just because he got freaked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and he moved to Yonkers. 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 There he found a two-bedroom house for rent under owners Jack and Nan Kassara. He began renting from the couple who had also lived on the property and had a German shepherd. Which becomes a thing. Mm. David could not stand this dog, as it would howl at all hours of the night and day. David became increasingly convinced that the howling was no coincidence. He believed that the howling was directly correlated to the voices and demons in his mind. Oh, my God. He believed that the demons were using the howling to communicate with him, Mm -hmm. consistently seeking a blood sacrifice. Oh, my God. This is, like, the most common knowledge thing about David Berkowitz is that he claims that the neighbor's (laughs) dog told him to kill. He's Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, like, (laughs) that's, like next level shit like that how scary how scared do you think he was in that moment like i can't get this out of my head they're telling me they're controlling me like he truly believes that you can tell he truly believed that that's so sad and if like if his first of all did his dad ever fucking say anything about that letter that he wrote him because no bitch he's living in california or florida with his new wife fuck apparently (laughs) like that's so terrible it is awful. He just needed someone to fucking be there for him, like, yeah. in, his, in the early life. And he needed someone to fucking make sure he didn't get hit by a fucking moving vehicle and then run into a brick wall. <laughs> Jump off of, yeah. God, that's... <laughs> he just didn't have a fucking chance from the start. That's so awful. David said about this time, quote, I'd come home to Caligny Avenue at, like, 6.30 in the morning. This is verbatim. It would begin then, the howling. On my days off, I heard it all night, too. It made me scream. I used to scream out, begging for the noise to stop, and it never did. The demons never stopped. I couldn't sleep. I had no strength to fight. I could barely drive. Coming home from work one night, I almost killed myself in the car. I needed to sleep, and the demons wouldn't give me any peace. End quote. That is so fucking sad. You can hear how manic it sounds. Like, yeah. like you know like he can't i guarantee you that dog was not howling at all hours of the night i'm sure it wasn't maybe every once in a while but he just heard it yeah all the time it was just more prevalent when the dog would right yeah and then you just hear it echoing for forever it reminds me of that hh holmes the episode where we did where you said that his buddy committed suicide like later on and he left note that said i couldn't sleep i just couldn't sleep that's so sad it is it is really sad like all you want is fucking peace and quiet after seemingly being tortured by the neighborhood dogs and the relationship with his landlords dwindling due to David's strange behavior, David decided to move yet again. He said then, quote, When I moved to the Caseras, they seemed very nice and quiet, but they tricked me. They lied. I thought that they were members of the human race, but they weren't. Suddenly, the Caseras began to show up with demons. They began to howl and cry out, blood and death. They called out names of the masters, the blood monster, John Wheaties, 
General Jack Cosmo, end quote. So David, around this time, he began to believe that Jack Cressera, who was like the owner of the house, was in cahoots with dog demons and that he became their chief and believed that Jack was purposely wrangling up stray dogs in the neighborhoods just to torment him. Oh my gosh, what a concept. Like, what a thought pattern. Right? I mean, it's almost like, it's, it's, it almost sounds like it would be like a, like a Stephen King novel, you know what I mean? And it's, it, it's like, it's so far-fetched. Mind the pun. But, you know, it. Yeah. it's, but it's also so linear that it's kind of believable. Like, that somebody would believe that. You yeah. know what I mean? God, that's so sad. I can't even imagine that. Like, like I don't even think that, like, the brain is so crazy that the fact that they have, the, it has the capability to make someone believe something like that is it, yeah, just Yeah, and convince insane. you. And convince you. It's just intense. Yeah. Needless to say, of course, you know, he moved out. So he moved to a one bedroom like apartment. It was I think it was kind of like a duplexy type thing. But of course this area also had dogs. And of course, most notably, David's neighbor was one Sam Carr. Sam had a dog named Harvey, and David felt especially targeted by this dog specifically. He also believed that Sam, the owner, was a demon in human skin and the most powerful demon that worked for General Jack Cosmo, mm. his previous neighbor yeah. or owner. On one occasion, David attempted to throw a Molotov cocktail in Sam Carr's yard in an effort to kill the dog, but was unsuccessful. It, was, it got snuffed out. It didn't well, work. his fire-setting career was not over then. <laughs> well, he didn't set the fire because it went out. Okay, well, he tried. But he did like fire, I guess, still. That's so awful. In late July 1976, Donna Laria and her girlfriend, Judy Valenti, decided to go out for a night of dancing at a local dance club. Leaving the club around 1 a.m., Jody parked her car outside of Donna's house while the two chatted and laughed about the night that they had just had. After the conversation ended and Donna and Jody said their goodnights, Donna opened up the car door. As she opened up the door, she noticed a man walking directly towards her in a rushed manner with rage on his face. Uh-uh. As soon as the words, now what is this, left Donna's mouth, the man crouched down, getting down on one knee, bracing his elbow on his knee and fired one shot. Striking Donna and killing her instantly. Oh my gosh. Jody was not totally sure of what was going on and was shocked when the man walked up to the passenger door and without taking aim, shot once into the car, striking the 19-year-old in the hip. Turning to leave, the man shot once more towards the young women, but didn't hit either of them. Donna was pronounced dead at the scene. She was just 18. Oh my god. Jody was rushed to the hospital. She was able to tell detectives that she didn't recognize the man as someone that she might know. Police do feel like this was a targeted attack by someone that they knew, though. Jody was able to give a description of the attacker. She said that the man stood at about 5'8", about 200 pounds, 30 years of age, dark curly hair, cut in a mod-style cut. She also described seeing a yellow car leaving the scene after the shooting. This was also corroborated by Donna's own father, who had, earlier in the day, witnessed a man matching the description sitting in a yellow car on their street. Interesting. Even neighbors said that they did see the car patrolling the streets the last day or two. David felt like he had done well and that he had made Sam proud. Sam had told David that he would find David a wife. He told him that the woman he was to kill would be risen again and married to David when she would eventually rise from the dead. This is, obviously, Sam did not say this. No. This is in his brain. (laughs) That Sam had told him, like, kind of like when the demons were telling him... I'll let you know when you find your victim kind of a thing. Yeah. 
it's the same thing, but it was like, the woman that you're about to kill will be your wife. So he's trying to find, like, an attractive woman to kill or whatever. Sure, yeah. Okay. So that's what David thinks. <sighs> On October 23rd, 1976, Carl DeNaro, age 20, and a group of friends got together to throw him a going-away party for at a local bar. Um, Carl was actually due to leave for the military in just a few short days. Rosemary Keenan, who was 18 at the time, was a friend of Carl's and who was at attendance at this party. And after the bar began to close down around 2.30, Rosemary offered to drive Carl home. The two stopped along the way in Flushing, Queens, near Brown Park. They chatted for a bit, or whatever 21-year-olds do in a car at night outside of a park at 2.30 in the morning. Smokes a little bit of weed, kissing, what have you. All of a sudden, the glass of the windows shattered around them. Startled and not knowing what was transpiring, Rosemary started the car and sped off. When they were able to assess themselves, they both realized that Carl had actually been shot in the head but was conscious at the time. Jeez. Until learning that fact, essentially. I mean, once you realize that... He, yeah, he, shock. Yeah. He woke up just a few hours later in the hospital. Carl had undergone emergency surgery, inclu including the use of metal plates for the extensive damage done to his skull. Rosemary was unharmed by the would-be killer, just minor scrapes and scratches from the shattered glass. Mm -hmm. Neither Rosemary nor Kyle could give a good description of the suspect, However, investigators would not leave so empty-handed from this scene. They were actually able to obtain a near-perfect bullet from the shell of the car and were able to determine that the bullet was a forty-four caliber. Oh, wow. Although it was not determined at the time what kind of gun was used yeah. because it still suffered some damage. Carl's father was actually a 20-year New York City police veteran at the time of the shooting, so of course the department took this very seriously. Mm -hmm. The shooting had yet to be linked to Donna and Jody's shooting since they were... Um, Invest being investigated by two different boroughs because this happened in two different boroughs. It would be revealed later that due to Carl's long hair at the time, the killer likely believed that there were two women in the car. About a month later, 16-year-old Donna DeMassi and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino decided to go see a late-night movie. They took the bus to get back to Joanne's family home when the two were where the two were supposed to be staying the night. Once they reached the porch of the home, they noticed that they had been followed by a man in military fatigues. The man began to speak in a high-pitched voice. Hey, guys, how's it going? <laughs> That's what I imagine. As if to ask the girls for directions while attempting to manipulate his voice at the same time. When all of a sudden the man pulled a gun from his coat pocket and began firing at them. Oh, my gosh. He struck each of the girls once, incapacitating them, and then he turned to run away, and when he did, he fired, fired several more shots in their direction, but they weren't hit um, a second time. He's, like, really chaotic with this gun. It's weird. Okay, but remember when, you know, they had said that he was a really good marksmith? Yeah. Uh, or marksmith, marksman, when he was in the army. So why is he missing all the time? Exactly. Like, why is he hitting each of them once and then, like, turning to run and going, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can't catch everywhere. me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that is weird. It's weird. As the suspect ran away, a neighbor who had heard the shots ran to the sidewalk to see what the noise was. At that moment, the suspect ran right past the neighbor who noticed the man had a revolver in his hand. This neighbor was able to provide a description of the man, although the neighbor swore that the suspect had blonde hair, not deep brown or black like Berkowitz did. That's why eyewitness testimony is not very reliable. Donna DeMassey would be struck in the neck by gunfire, but Ooh. she would ultimately survive the attack. Joanne Lamino, who um, also survived the attack, she actually would never walk again. The bullet pierced her Aww. or did enough damage to her spinal cord. That's she so would never sad. walk again. 
And she was like 20 years old. Fucking dickhead. Or 18. I think she might have been 18. Yeah. 18. Oh, that's so sad. At this point, these three shootings have yet to be connected, mm -hmm. as only one bullet was not completely destroyed, and that was the scene from Carl and Rosemary shooting. On January 30th, 1977, Christine Fruend and her fiancé, John Dial, decided to go see the hottest new movie. It was just released a couple of months prior. Ooh. Guess it. Um, 1977. The biggest movie. Grease? Well, it was technically 1960, uh, 1976, because it had come out, like, November. No. I don't know. Adrian, Adrian. Rain Man? <laughs> Rocky. Oh, Rocky. <laughs> I said the first letter right. Rain Man. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hey, guys. While we're on the topic of movies, we definitely want to shout out one of our new favorite podcasts, Moviecation. Brady, Cole, Joe, and Tyler dive into some of the best and worst movies and TV shows of all time. Whether it's blockbuster hits or B-list flicks, these guys have all the information and spoilers you could ever want. Check out Movication wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you know, okay, so just a little tidbit about Rocky. You know, like, everybody thinks Eye of the Tiger when they think Rocky. That's actually Rocky 3. It's not even Rocky, like, the first Rocky. Damn. Right? Lame. It's the Eye of the <laughs> So while the couple sat in the car of the theater parking lot, they were considering which dance hall that they wanted to attend for that night. Shots began to ring out. The car was struck several times by gunfire. John only suffered minor injuries from the glass shattering. However, Christine was struck twice in the head. Yeah. After John tried to drive from the scene and waved down passing motorists for help, neighbors called police. Christine would eventually succumb to her injuries in the oh, hospital. That's so sad. It's really sad. Can you imagine, like, your fucking fiancé and you're just your trying fiance. to have a date night? Oh, my gosh. I was actually going to go to the drive-in movies tonight. I'm glad we're not now. Listening to John, like, because there's, like, an actual interview and he was, like, when she went to, like, tuck her head, she was, like, leaning into his chest and then she was shot. I think she was, like, leaning towards John for, like, cover, and oh. he was trying to hold her, and she was shot, like, while... Oh, my God. So it was, like, after she was shot and she was already gone, he was, like, he lifted her back up and noticed, like, that she wasn't responding. Oh, my God. I can't imagine that and shit. And then it's so sad. Ugh. It's a really sad interview. Neither one would be able to give a description of the assailant, of course. Um, bullets that were recovered from the scene matched a forty-four caliber gun. Mm -hmm. Police at this time, looking at certain circumstances of each crime, determined that these four shootings were all linked somehow, specifically that most of the targets seemed to be long, dark-haired women and young. After this finding, the 44 caliber killer case would be taken over by Captain Borelli. Under Borelli's watch, it was proven that the specific 44 caliber gun they would be looking for was a bulldog revol revolver, which is a very unusual gun. Yeah. Police would compare the composites that Jody Valenti provided and the one from the Joanne Lamino and Donna DeMassi case and determine that there must be more than one suspect because these sketches didn't make any sense. On March 8, 1977, Virginia Verskechian was walking home from a Columbia University campus when she noticed a man walking up directly towards her. As the man raised his gun, Virginia tried to shield herself with her own textbooks, but was ultimately shot and killed at the scene. Oh my god. It's so sad. Just at fucking school. Yep. 
Well, I mean, it's at night, but still. Still. But she's walking yeah. home. Probably from studying or something. Bullets that were recovered from the scene were that of a forty-four caliber bulldog. At this time, police released the information to the public that the killer was using a forty-four caliber weapon. Fucking dumbasses. And to call in with any information of anyone knowing anyone in possession of one. Yeah, they're gonna fucking just let you know, hey, I have one of those. <laughs> in, like, the height of, like, New York. Like, yeah, what the hell? Also, during around this time, like, New York's crime rate was just insane. So it was yeah. like, anybody could have a fucking forty-four. So the killer was, of course, dubbed the forty-four caliber killer. Ooh. Panic gripped the surrounding area of the crimes, keeping in mind that although New York was really, really rough at this time, the neighborhoods where Berkowitz was striking were actually known to be very quiet areas. Yeah. April 10th, Sam Carr receives an anonymous letter from a neighbor complaining that his dog Harley was a menace and was too loud. This person threatened to get the city involved if he couldn't shut the dog up. This poor fucking guy named Sam, because of what (laughs) happens later, this poor guy probably feels so bad and he didn't even do anything wrong. On April 17th, 1977, Valentia Siriani, who was an aspiring actress, and her boyfriend, college student Alexander Assau, borrowed Alex's brother's car to go out together for that night. After returning home around 3 a.m., the couple began to kiss and such inside the car, parked a block away from Valentina's home. A neighbor heard four shots ring out and then immediately called police. When the police arrived, they found Valentina, who was just 18 and had died from a single bullet wound. Alexander was taken to the hospital with two gunshot wounds to the head and would pass away several hours later. Oh my He was only 20. And like, no one can fucking identify him because they either don't survive or they can't see him and they don't even know what's happening until they get shot. Alex had been unconscious since the moment he had been shot, therefore was unable to communicate with officers who may have done the shooting. Bullets that were recovered from the scene were consistent with other bullets left at other crime scenes. This was not all investigators would find, however. Near the car, police would find a letter addressed to Captain Varelli. No. The note stated this, quote, Mr. Joe Borelli, Queen's Homicide, I am deeply hurt by you calling me a Weemon hater. W-E-M-O-N, a Weemon hater. What is that? A wo- woman? Yes. Oh, no. It's like BTK all over again. A woman. <laughs> I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered. Their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me are it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She is resting in our lady's house, but I will see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for game, tasty meat. The Weemon of Queens are the prettiest of all. 
I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt. My life. Blood for Papa, Mr. Borelli, sir. I don't want to kill anyone, no, sir. No more, but I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos. To the people of Queens. I love you. And I wa want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in his life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang. Ugh, yours and murder, Mr. Monster. End quote. Okay. Ugh. I'm sweating. First of all, he contradicted himself like 30 fucking times in that whole letter. He's like, I love the women, but I'm going to kill them all. Like, you must kill me, but stay away from me. Or else I'll kill you. Like, okay, and all of that is a farce, clearly, except for the part that he's going to keep killing. Imagine getting that letter. Like, does this guy really think that someone is locked in an attic and is being forced to kill? Or does he think that he is suffering from some sort of disorder? So, I don't know. Okay, so it can be interpreted, like, a few different ways, That's right? so much. Like, we know that, like, the dogs are talking to him, right? So, I'm wondering if Sam, like, when he says, like, Sam is getting old, he's, like, this demon that needs to, like, feast on blood to remain young... But is it like trapped in a ba- like trapped in the attic? Is it like he feels like he's trapped in the attic until Sam the demon uses him? You know what I mean? He's watching the world kind of pass by while he's not being used by Sam. You know what I mean? But he's also like very intelligent, so maybe he's just trying to throw them off and make it seem like he is being held captive and being forced to do this, and he's not just like because. As far as I'm concerned, him and Sam, like, don't even know each other. Like, Sam has no idea who this guy is, pretty much. yeah. And so, it's not like he's actually having conversations with Sam and misinterpreting them or just interpreting them differently. He's just pretending, like, not pretending, but he's being told by his hallucinations that this is what's happening. Or he's, like, pushing the narrative just to be unnerving. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, he's saying things that don't make sense because it sounds like it's out of the mind of a crazy person. Yeah. You know what I mean? But... So detectives have some theories as to what the letter meant. One theory is that the writer struggled with the death of a parent. That's why he calls himself son. And that maybe his father, his real father, had suffered a heart attack because he made that that notion of, like, he's had so many heart attacks, he's had so many heart attacks. Yeah, but his adoptive dad is alive and well, and his bio dad... Right, but this How is just the die? detective's theory oh, of, like, okay, who they might be looking for. I see. Donna and Jody, which were the two, uh, the first two shooting victims, they were also nursing students. So they were like, oh, maybe he's attacking young, like, Florence Nightingale-type sh- people. You know what I mean? Son of Sam could also be in reference to the military, meaning the son of Uncle Sam. So they were I- like, maybe he's a military man. And again, at one point in the letter, uh, it, there's kind of references to this Scott English accent. Like when I was like, yeah. oh, me ah, it's Sonny Boy, you know, it was sunny weird. Boy. Um, so detectives thought that maybe the writer might be that might be like close to heritage or something like that. Okay. And again, this is all just speculation. They don't fucking know. Either way, the letter was addressed specifically to a police officer, especially to the head of the investigation. And it was really unnerving. Um, and when did he leave that letter? Because neighbors called police immediately after the shots were fired. So how he, did he, like, run by and, like, toss it? Unless he left it there and then did the shooting. You know what I mean? 
He walked by them first and left it there? I don't think he walked by. I think he just put it there and then he shot, you know? But if neighbors heard the shots, wouldn't they have seen him, like, when they called police? Like, not if they looked outside? three in the morning. No, that's it's three in the morning. It's not like it's noon. Most killers enjoy playing cat and mouse. Everybody knows that. But mm-hmm. the letters seemed to just be a little different. It It really didn't... It wasn't like, come find me, you know? It was just... But taunt, it was like it was just taunting. You and know? It was like shoot me if you must, but stay well, away if you that. dare. Yes, <laughs> stay away or else. <laughs> <laughs> so the investigators were absolutely convinced that this individual was suffering from some type of schizophrenia, and that they were sure that this person did believe that they were p- possessed by a demon. Okay. On May nineteenth, Sam Carr received another letter regarding his dog Harley. The letter stated, "Quote: I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long." Yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this could destroy my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of a person you are and what kind of a family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. You have no love for any other human beings. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now and I have nothing to lose anymore. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. Immediately, no, I would move so fucking fast. (laughs) I would be like, I'm the fuck out of here. You give that dog away. Damn it, you give that dog away. (laughs) Or I will end your life. (laughs) You woke up to sleep. Or I will put you to sleep. (laughs) Terrifying. That is, imagine getting that letter. It gets worse. Oh no. On May 29th, Sam Carr's dog, Harley, was shot in the middle of the night. (gasps) Harley would be rushed to a vet and ultimately would survive. Oh, my god! Could you imagine? Like, getting that letter and then, like, someone following through on what they said they were going to do. Right? He probably was like, oh, these damn kids. Like, <laughs> Not only that, but letter- imagine what it's like for Berkowitz and be, like, thinking that that dog is, like, a god or something because <laughs> you shot it. Like, you, you've already killed people with the same gun and you've, like, shot this dog with a forty-four and it survives. When oh, the dog yeah. is, you know what I mean? Yeah. For the schizophrenia spectrum, can't be good. Can't He's be good. are like, oh my God. It survives. Like... It's a god. Oh, it's protected. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. <clears throat> Did you hear that demon come out in my voice just now? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> On May 30th, 1977, so the next day, the Daily News received a letter addressed to Jimmy Breslin. Jimmy, by this time, was a well known figure in American journalism. Jimmy had recently put out an article detailing some of the crimes that the son of Sam had committed and almost taunted him, told the killer to turn himself in since it was the only clear civil outcome for this whole thing. The son of Sam did not like this. Uh, yeah. The envelope containing the letter said nothing on the front, but the back read, quote, blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, 44, end quote. The letter stated this, quote, Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies as they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks of the sidewalks of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dried blood of the dead that has settled into these cracks. J.B., I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily, and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you'd like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria. You cannot let the people forget about her either. 
She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me in a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here. Like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at my next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember Miss Loria. Thank you. In their blood from the gutters. Sam's Creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death. No, shut up. (laughs) The Wicked King Wicker. No, he did not. No, he did not. The 22 Disciples of Hell. What? That's not even a name. John Wheaties. (laughs) (laughs) Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. That's not, that's like too much. That's a mouthful. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get off your butts. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can come up with the money. Signed, Son of Sam. Okay, that is so all over the place. Isn't it? All over the place. Like, it sounds really creepy and ominous at the beginning. It sounds like Rorschach, like Watchmen. It's like, the gutters of NYC. Yeah. You know, it's so, I don't know. Also, with the English terms, he says inspector, and then he says detectives. Yeah. That's, like, contradicting itself already. Yeah. It's interesting. So what did Jimmy do with this letter? No. Why, he printed it in the newspaper, of course. No, he did not. (laughs) Yes, he did. Oh, hell no. He's like, help me come up with one of the names for this guy. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the best one. We're taking a poll. <laughs> I like the Wicked Wicker Man or whatever. What was the first one? It was the Duke of Death. The Duke of Death. The Duke of Death. <laughs> the Derby Kid. The Wicked Kid. The Derby Kid. <laughs> the Derby Kid. The Wicked King Wicker. The 22 Disciples of Hell. That doesn't even make sense. John Wheaties. <laughs> suffocator duke of death the duke of death damn that's crazy so to this day the daily news that article was the top selling newspaper of all time like of the daily news history oh my god it sold it was over 1.1 million copies to this day it is the most anybody has bought a daily daily news article or edition, I guess. Because at this point, like, people know that there's a serial murderer, like, yeah. on the loose, and... But with this came complications from the public. Thousands and thousands of false leads were fed to the investigation. Not only that, but fear became rampant. Women began to dye their hair, cut their hair, or wear their hair under bandanas or head wraps to cover the color of their hair. Wow. At night, the streets were all barren. Girlfriends and boyfriends opted to stay inside or to kiss goodnight on the porch instead. Within the letter, the date July 29th references the one-year anniversary um, of the shooting that Donna Loria was killed in. The text on the page was also very different than the first letter that was written to Borelli. 
the text almost looked like comic book text. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like where it's like all caps. So much so that the investigators actually interviewed several writers for DC Comics. Really? Yeah. You know, like the Batman people? Yeah. <laughs> if, if somebody doesn't know. Um, it was very super neat to read. Like it was placed. The spacing was very nice. Um, the original letter, if you look at the first one. It's all over the place. It's, like, mm -hmm. really choppy. It doesn't make any sense. This one's, like, very, like... Intricate. Well, it's just very specific looking. Mm -hmm. So detectives also thought that they were dealing with someone who had done calligraphy before or something. Mm. Not only that, but this letter was the first time that the son of Sam had drawn a picture towards the bottom. And it had, like... It was, like, a circle with, like... I don't want to say... Not, like, the Zodiac one, because it also had, like, triangles on it or something. It's really interesting if anybody wants to look at it. If you go to Murderpedia, they have pictures of all the letters. So this is the first time that they like detectives were like, oh, there's like a riddle in picture form. Detectives also thought that some of the references to the Wicked King Wicker was actually in reference to the Wicker Man, the movie. Hmm. So they actually arranged a screening of the movie for detectives to like sit in the theater and like watch the whole movie to see if there was any clues. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I love that movies were brought up like twice. Yeah. We didn't talk about Rocky and then Wicker Man. <laughs> Wicker Man was, like, four years old at this point, though, I think. So does this guy, Sam, like, the real Sam, not make the correlation of, like, now there's this new killer that says he's son of Sam and I'm getting these odd letters in the <laughs> mail? <laughs> like, I would be like, I'm Sam. <laughs> like, Wouldn't you? And there's, like, these odd letters coming to my house. So. I don't know. You're not the only Sam and... Brooklyn or Bronx. But I'm area. sure not the other Sams are probably not getting these weird letters or their dog getting shot with the same type of gun that the So there was murders. another kind of letter and I didn't get to see the ones that were addressed to Sam Carr, but there was another player in all of this and I think he was um a sheriff not a sheriff or like a chief not a chief. What am I trying to say? He was just, like, a police officer, and I think he was, like, one of his neighbors or something. But when he addressed the letters to this other guy, he was writing in, like, this really beautiful cursive. Hmm. And so, I'm, you know, if you see these letters that are being run in the newspaper now at this point... They don't look the same. They don't look the same at all, you know? But still, I mean, I don't know. That's just very odd that his dog got killed by, like, the same type of gun. But he also... But Son of Sam Not hasn't... Killed, but shot, I mean. ...hasn't referenced dogs at all. Yeah, that's in true. his letters that are publicly known. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that the the letters that Sam was getting, Sam Carr was getting, were just like, could you shut that fucking dog up? You know what I mean? Like, it didn't yeah. have anything to do with demons or being in an attic or any of that <laughs> stuff. You're my father. Or you're my father. Yeah. <laughs> my long lost daddy. On June 26, 1977, Salvatore Lupo and Judy Placido were sitting in Sal's car after a night of dancing at a club. The two laughed about how they shouldn't be sitting alone together in a parked car at night, given the recent strings of attacks on couples in cars. Hmm. With the time frame, like, being the way that it is, like, it's, what, the 70s, like, late 70s, like, mm -hmm. it, it was very common, of course, for of course. teenagers to do that, because then they couldn't spend time together after they went home, you know, right. in their houses. And so I get, like, the want to continue to do that, but also with the news, like, I'm not victim-blaming at all, but, right. you know, it's just unfortunate that he was targeting people that were just being innocent, you know. Just kids having fun. Yeah. But it's everything that he hated. He hated it because he never got that. Yeah, exactly. Moments later, shots ripped through the car, striking Judy three times in the neck, back, and head. Oh my gosh. Sal received a bullet to the arm, 
both would survive the attack, although neither would be able to describe the assailant. Witnesses believed that they saw a man with dark hair running from the scene, hopping into a car, and were able to obtain a partial plate from that car. Ooh. This attack reminded everyone that the ominous letter that Son of Sam had written mentioned July 29th, the anniversary of Donna Loria's murder. This was not... It, this was in June, but still. Mm-hmm. It's like gaining, like, momentum. The city felt a lot of very real fear building up as the date got closer. Police were canvassing streets the week leading up to that date, and they even posed as couples in cars late at night in, like, neighborhood parks. Bro, I'd be like, I'm sorry, give this assignment to someone else. Somebody else, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's crazy. But, I mean, they're literally putting themselves in harm's way. They are. Like, unless they have, like, bulletproof glass on their doors, like, you could literally get shot and, like, not even realize what was happening. It's really scary. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what happened to Carl. He didn't even realize he was shot. Yeah, He just thought that, like, a rock had been thrown through the window or something. But the date came and went, and no new murders from the 44 caliber killer. What? However, on July 31st, the son of Sam would claim another victim. In Brooklyn, so southeast of, like, Queens, Bronx yeah. area, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante went out on their very first date together. Oh, no. Robert, before leaving for the night, told his parents that he intended to stay in the Brooklyn area for the date to ensure that the two were safe. After a night of dancing and enjoying the night together, they parked their car outside of a park and began to kiss and such. When the couple pulled away from each other for a moment, Robert noticed that there was a man standing three feet away from Stacy's window. Oh, hell no. The man raised his hand and began firing into the car. Robert would be struck in the head twice. He would lose an eye and almost all of his vision in his right eye. Stacy was struck twice in the head and would be rushed to the hospital, but ultimately would not survive. She was just 20. And um, she would also be Son of Sam's only blonde-haired victim as well. That's interesting. Right? Witnesses would say that a man with light-colored hair ran from the scene once the shots had ceased. Another witness said that they saw a yellow car fleeing the area. Given the fact that Stacy was blonde and that her and Robert were shot in Brooklyn and not the usual Son of Sam, it's not the usual Son of Sam area, yeah. police were relieved when they actually found that the bullets from the scene were that of the forty four caliber killer and not that of a copycat. Oh, yeah, for sure. One officer was quoted in saying, quote, it's hard enough to catch one of them. Could you imagine if there were two? End I quote. mean, that sounds kind of bad, but it's true. Yeah. Four days later, Cecilia Davis contacted police regarding the night that Stacy Moskowitz was murdered. She said that she was out walking her dog when she saw a patrol officer ticketing parked cars around the park. On her way back to her apartment, she noticed that a man who was visibly upset was by his car because he had been ticketed for being too close to a fire hydrant. The car was described as a 1970 yellow Ford Galaxy. He drives, like, the most obvious car, too. It's like, that's so the yellow. Thing. Yeah. It's, well, I think he bought it because, remember, earlier, like, it said that he was a taxi driver for a little bit? Yeah. And I wonder if he just didn't buy it because it was it yellow. like a taxi, yeah. She said she watched the man become frustrated, saying something to himself under his breath as he walked away from the vehicle with something dark colored in his hand. Oh, no. When Cecilia turned to walk back to her apartment, she heard shots ring out. She did not give a reason as to why she waited on that information, Because this was, like, four days later. Yeah. But maybe she was just scared. Either way, police took this information and retrieved the ticket log for that night. The yellow Ford Galaxy was registered to David Berkowitz. And it had the same partial plate as the recent victim, or the recent witness Mm -hmm. said. 
On August 9th, Detective James Justice put his efforts into locating David Berkowitz. When Justice called the Yonkers Precinct to schedule a a few officers to go look for David Berkowitz, a young woman by the name of Wheat Carr answered the phone. When Justice brought up the name David Berkowitz, Wheat was shocked, as David was her family's neighbor. This is pretty, because it's a pretty unusual name, right? Yeah. Wheat, right? She had two brothers who also lived in the home, John and Michael. It clicked in the officer's head that in both of the Son of Sam letters, John one to Borelli and one to Daily News, he references a John Wheaties. Interesting. (laughs) I just got that as soon as you were about to say it. Wheat told Justice that she and her family were convinced that David was responsible for the shooting of their dog. And just described him as a disturbed person um, who all the neighbors were really kind of weirded out about. He lived in kind of a nice area. So through this conversation, Justice was easily able to locate Berkowitz's house. The next day, while police staked out David Berkowitz's residence, they peeked inside of his car, the Galaxy, and noticed that there was a butt of a forty-four caliber pistol underneath, mm. the, like in the back seat. Interesting. It's just a coincidence. The police were waiting to obtain a search warrant for the apartment when David came out suddenly from his home. He exited and began to walk to the car. And as soon as he like reached for the door handle, police feared that once he got a hold of the gun, it would be a bad situation. Yeah. So they they literally pulled out their guns and they were just like, you know, get on the ground. So they arrest him. On what, though? Suspicion? <clears throat> Suspicion, probably, or holding or whatever, you yeah. know, whatever. They have right to hold him for some reason. Well, if he was, the he he is the person that was in the car that got ticketed that shot fired, he could be held as a material witness. As a witness. That. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So again, forty four caliber bulldog that they found. Um, David, with his hands in the air, stated, quote, well, you got me, end quote. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I'd be like, no, 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 we don't, no, we don't, no, no. Detective Falatico, who was the arresting officer, said, quote, got who? Who have I got? You know. No, I don't. Tell me. I'm Sam. You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. Located inside the car was another letter written similarly to the other letters talking about plans to shoot inside of a busy club, like a discotheque, <sighs> like within the next week or so. <sighs> Could you imagine, though? Like, now it's like, we can imagine mass shootings. Yeah. But, like, in 70, like, late 70s, maybe not so much. But could you imagine? (sighs) He's just really scary. He just, like, he's like, well, you got me. Like, he's just like, you got me, cowboys. Like, not gave up, but it sounds bad, but he just, like, surrendered immediately. Berkowitz was taken to the Yonkers precinct and held until they could officially take a statement from him. Confident in the arrest, police had held a press conference where the mayor would state, quote, the people of the city of New York can rest easy today because of the fact that police have captured a man who they believe to be the son of Sam, end oh, quote. Wow. In the early morning hours of April 11th, David Berkowitz confessed to all his crimes he had committed over the last year and a half, and he had expressed his intention of pleading guilty to every single one of them. He continued to maintain that he was, in fact, possessed by several demons and that he did believe that he was being controlled by the neighborhood dogs, who had only been silenced by blood sacrifices. The public was shocked to find out what David looked like, this unassuming, broad-statured man who was a taxi driver and post office worker. Yeah. He seemed mild-mannered and was described by some to be just quiet, and he was living in a nice area, and some neighbors didn't have a problem with him at all. It didn't sit well with some people. 
Not to mention that he looked nothing like the composite sketches. Wow. Initial psychiatric tests concluded that Berkowitz was competent enough to stand trial, and against the advice of his defense lawyers to plead... Testified for himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the defense lawyers were like, you should plead guilty by reason of insanity, and Berkowitz said absolutely not. He maintained his guilty plea. Wow. On September 19th, 1977, David Berkowitz was allowed to release a statement regarding the charges. In this statement, Berkowitz says, quote, there are other sons out there. God help the world. End quote. Doubt it. Alluding to the fact that he did not work alone. David Berkowitz was found guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder and all counts of attempted murder. At his sentencing hearing just two weeks later, Berkowitz tried to jump out of the courtroom window in an effort to unalive himself. Oh my god. He was on the seventh <laughs> floor. When he was detained, he began to yell, quote, Stacy was a whore. She deserved to die. I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again, end quote. Once the courtroom calmed and David was evaluated evaluated once more to... <laughs> I'll <laughs> fucking say he's to be evaluated <laughs> after that shit. <laughs> Let me reevaluate you again. Just make so. sure that you're good. Yeah. So he was evaluated again just to make sure that he was sane enough to be at his sentencing. Yeah. Berkowitz was sentenced to six 25-to-life sentences to run consecutively. And I like when they say that run consecutively. Yeah. Like, they're going to give you a break in between? Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. Berkowitz bounced around from psychiatric facility to psychiatric facility for the first year or so that he was sentenced, before landing in Attica for almost 10 years. Within this first year at Attica, another inmate tried to kill Berkowitz by slashing at him. Oh, no. Berkowitz... (laughs) What? (laughs) sounded so sarcastic. (laughs) Oh, no. I was being genuine. It just didn't come out like that. Berkowitz actually received 50 stitches to his neck and was able to recover. Berkowitz described Attica as a nightmare, but like, good. How um, many, sorry, <clears throat> how many stitches, stitches would it take to stitch your whole head back on? Because I feel like 50 is a lot. <laughs> 50 is a lot, right? We could have some inside, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's I don't know. true. Jeez, that's scary. It's, that's horrible. Berkowitz said about the slashing that he deserved it but that the experience also gave him a new perspective, and he was grateful to the inmate, never revealing who the culprit actually was. Like, he knew who it was. He was like, he never gave him up. Respect. It was at this time that David decided to turn his life over to God. Okay. He says in his testimony about his conversion to evangelism, and, end quote. <laughs> The whole thing has been a quote thus far. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) It's just him breathing. (laughs) Quote, At one time, I almost lost my life when another inmate cut my throat. Yet all through this, and I did not realize until later, God had his loving hands on me. Ten years into my prison sentence, and feeling despondent without any hope, another inmate came up to me one day as I was walking the prison yard on a cold winter's night. He introduced himself to me and began to tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and he wanted to forgive me. Although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God would ever forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still, this man persisted and then we became friends. His name was Rick and we would walk the yard together. Little by little, he would share with me about his life and what he believed Jesus had done for him. He kept reminding me that no matter what a person did, Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to turn from bad things that they were doing and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he did on the cross by dying for our sins. 
He gave me a Gideon's pocket testament and asked me to read Psalms. I did. Every night I would read them, and it was at this time that the Lord was quietly melting my stone-cold heart. Jeez, that's heavy. (laughs) It's really heavy, right? Berkowitz has written many things about his spiritual experiences and growth, and though many have been published, he has never taken any royalties. He started a prison ministry and insists on going by the Son of Hope instead of his aforementioned name. Hmm. Berkowitz has skipped or refused every opportunity to have his conviction appealed or overturned, saying, quote, In all honesty, I believe I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have, with God's help, long ago come to terms with my situation and have accepted my punishments. End quote. In 2002, Berkowitz sued a previous lawyer who had actually sold the Son of Sam letters in the name of memorabilia. It was just fucking gross. That is so gross. Berkowitz stated he would only drop the suit if the profits made from the sales of the letters were given to the victim's families, to which Dang. the two came to an agreement out of court. Isn't that intense? It's like he's a different person. But routine. We always talk about routine. It's true. And no, who knows what kind of medication he might be on, too. Yeah. Helpful medication. Exactly. Right? In 1993, Berkowitz made several claims that he did not work alone, but actually with a group of satanic assailants. I don't know if I believe that. Out of fear of risking the lives of friends and family, David kept the names of the supposed suspects to himself. The only two accomplices that Berkowitz ever named were John and Michael Carr. Have you heard about this? Mm Mm-mm. These accusations would never be confirmed or denied by the two men, since both were already dead by this point. A year after David's arrest, John, whose middle name was Wheat as well, he actually died in a shooting that was ruled a suicide, but only after a thorough investigation since the scene was so bizarre. Mm. I didn't go into the scene. Essentially, he is by himself, from what I can remember, by himself in like this... Essentially, you can only get to this specific place. It's, like, out in the middle of nowhere. It's, like, snowing. You could only get to this place if you drove there. Yeah. He's by himself, just him, with a gun. Hmm. But, like, that's it. How did he get there? Exactly. Within a year of John's death, Michael would actually die in a car accident. Where it was, like, he slammed into this single car accident. Very sus. Very sus. Very sus. Both men were also very involved in the Church of Scientology at the time, and it has been speculated that this may be the clue in revealing the true story of the real Sons of Sam. Wow. Ooh, I just got chills. (laughs) David Berkowitz resides in Schwangham Correctional Correctional Facility, and he is 69 years old. He's still alive? He's still alive. Oh, damn. That's wild. Isn't that wild? And what about this actual Sam guy? Like, he had nothing to do with anything? I don't know. Clearly, his sons were kind of involved. The fact that John Wheaties. That's so bizarre. If you ever look up a picture of John Carr, he is a taller, thinner, blonde man. Oh, and some of the suspects said that they thought... Some of the witnesses said that he... He looks like the composite. Interesting. And that's why it always seemed to be like these different composites of different people. And that's what... David was saying that Mm. he was saying that it's not just him. He, so he later on, even after like converting and everything said that he, he did admit to killing three people, not the original six. he took the fall for everyone. Then, yeah. But could you imagine if you were like totally brainwashed? Yeah. It was like for the greater good, you know? And like, it was like the satanic, 
cult thing or something where like everybody had to take a turn shooting someone. I was gonna say, but they all used the same gun. But they all used the same gun. Hmm. So they're just passing the gun around. Essentially. That's interesting. I actually didn't know. I keep I say this after like every case. I'm like, I actually didn't know a lot about that case. I I think that when people talk about Son of Sam, all that they say is like, yeah, the the neighbor's dog told them to kill people. Like it's like vague, like the way that they say it. Like it's like that's not exactly what happened, right? You know? So it's cool to kind of hear like the the whole story. And I mean, he's still alive. Shit. So I didn't include this in my notes, but I will read it verbatim um, from the Wikipedia page of Son of Sam. Nisa Moskowitz, who is Stacy's mother, who had previously not hidden her hatred for Berkowitz, wrote him a letter shortly before her own death in 2006, forgiving him for killing her daughter, Stacy. Mm. Moskowitz had actually lost all of her children at very young ages. Jody was just age nine and a possible suicide, and she lost her in 1968. Oh my god. Stacy, which was 77, and then Ricky, who was 37 and 99, and he was sick. She had no survivors except according to the New York Post, her daughter's murderer. And that's why she chose to forgive him. Yeah. That's intense. It's really sad. What a a good woman, though. Seriously. And there's tons of um, writings from David Berkowitz. Um, Mostly all that have been published are going to be nothing but spiritual things. Yeah. Um, But it's really interesting. I don't think that we've ever really seen a case where I feel like somebody like, transition so thoroughly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, in, in, you know, this rehabilitation and stuff. Yeah. So, I thought that was really interesting, and I had no idea. That is really interesting. Well, thanks for bringing that. I thought you were going to do the Zodiac Killer. That's who I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's kind of funny that I mentioned that his thing sounded, like, his little picture was almost like Zodiac. Or always on, like, a similar wavelength. (laughs) Yeah. Zodiac would be interesting. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, I was actually talking to a couple of listeners, and they said that they really enjoyed the mental breakdowns, and they were wondering why we weren't doing them. Uh, so we're definitely going to just throw a couple in there here now. I think we just wanted to like really focus on some some big cases, and we've done just that. So I think um, we'll be having a couple mental breakdowns come out pretty soon. Um, of course, we're not going to stop the the content with the cases and the, everything like that, but. Um, we did our handles in the beginning of the podcast, but definitely, um, send us an email, shout us out, follow us, sponsor us, but <laughs> you can yeah. subscribe to our Patreon. I would love to get some local businesses for sure. Small businesses, yeah. independent businesses for sure to, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. Email us for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, just as a reminder, um, go ahead and check out Movication. Go ahead and subscribe to their podcast. They're great guys and they do everything over Discord. So it's really cool that they're like super into what they do because they're able to do it from home and still kind of have a great time. Uh, they just shoot the shit, but it's also really fun to it's listen to. It's a lot of fun. I love but, listening to their opinions because yeah. they crack me up. <laughs> Well, that is all we have for you guys today. Hoo, hoo, hoo. All right. Bye. <laughs> Love you. Love Bye. You.